Hello again everyone, I'm Nathan and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 27th of September 2023. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News. Brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news as a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD. Simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 880 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Back in the anchor chair this week, reading for you, we have myself, Nathan, Angela, Christine, Ian, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course, not forgetting, the man himself, Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, we have an update from Beacon, the quiz with the wonderful Mina, from improving road safety to brewing a famous English cup of tea, we have the latest local news for the black country, another did you know section from Flashback Roger, Packed full of control var, see? We have the latest local football news for West Brom and Wolves. We also have the weather for the week ahead. And we have a feature article that looks at the role sounds play in our lives, whether they are pleasurable, like a lullaby, or painful, like nails on a chalkboard. Local news to start, though, with Ian and Christine. But first, Angela. At last, after years of delays and challenges, Nick Metro extension to Wolverhampton Railway Station has finally opened to the public. The extension has created two new tram stops at Pipers Row and Wolverhampton Railway Station via a new 720 metre route from St George's. The much-anticipated development has been marred by delays, having originally been due to be completed in 2019, but passengers can now finally ride the tram to Pipers Row and Wolverhampton Railway Station. Sophie Allison, Managing Director of West Midlands Metro, said of the extension, It's fantastic. It's great for the people of Wolverhampton and the wider West Midlands. By connecting the metro to two fantastic interchanges, the train station and the bus station, they'll have an opportunity to connect with the wider transport network. So it's really good news. We're now focusing on the next metro extensions and construction from Wensbury to Briley Hill is well underway. That will bring nine new stops in phase one of the development to Flood Street in Dudley. 
And that will be fantastic again for the people of Dudley who will have a fantastic interchange and connectivity. Addressing the challenges of the last few years, which saw the project's budget soaring from £35 to £50 million, she added, Like many things at the moment, there's that cost of inflation, so that's obviously impacted on us, and there was Covid, and building in the city centre has its challenges. But we're coming in now, and we're happy to be open for our customers. Ian Anderson, member of the Alliance leadership team, said... The extension is absolutely fantastic and I have to say I'm immensely proud of the product that we've ended up with. I think it looks really fit for the city. It's fantastic. And the train station, bus station and the tram are now all connected together with cycling in the same interface. It's really quite progressive. That connectivity will really benefit local residents. It's now an integrated transport system, which is what Transport for West Midlands is trying to achieve. They're not considering the different modes separately, they're doing it all together in a linked way for passengers, whatever their needs are. Project sponsor Nikki Haig said, It's actually quite emotional, I've got to say. It hasn't been the easiest project and there have been some real challenges. But to see the tram come through and people waiting at the stop, it's fantastic to see. It's been really rewarding. It'll be great for the people of Wolverhampton. One of the particular requirements of building a new system is that it's accessible for everybody. And that's been critical for all of us on the project. That's why we've got a fantastic stop here today. Measures are being rolled out to improve road safety across the region, including enhanced average speed camera enforcement and a crackdown on mobile phone use while driving. All of the new measures are being introduced following the adoption of a new region-wide strategy. The Refreshed Regional Road Safety Strategy 2023-2030 has been drawn up in consultation with a range of partners including local authorities and the emergency services and it was agreed last week by the West Midlands Combined Authority WMCA Board. The partners who form the West Midlands Road Safety Partnership set out the long-term ambition to reach a point where nobody is killed or seriously injured on the region's roads, known as Vision Zero. Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands and WMCA Chair, said, It's imperative that we continue our efforts to improve safety on our roads, and this strategy sets out our collective ambition to do just that. We're stating here that even one life lost is one too many, although we also recognise that this is a challenging task, hence why we're setting incremental targets to guide us along the way. Key to this is not only targeting issues as they arise, but also designing our roads and networks to reduce risk from the outset. That's why we're developing new safe cycle routes, 
boosting public transport priority arrangements and ensuring safer junctions. Safer roads relieve pressure on our emergency services, enhance our environment and foster well-being. With this strategy as the foundation, we now need to translate ambition into tangible action, taking further steps to reduce speeding and dangerous driving. Together we can and will make our roads safer for all users, whether they're in a car or lorry, on a bike or on foot. On the road, an interim target has been set to reduce the number of fatalities and seriously injured casualties by 50% by 2030. The partnership has committed to work together and take collective responsibility for achieving this important target using an approach combining street design, enforcement and education. The strategy is issued following a summer in which road safety has leapt to the top of the regional agenda following a series of fatalities and incidents of violent and anti-social driving. This has mobilised a community-led campaign in high-risk locations and widespread activity by West Midlands Police, supported by Transport for West Midlands TFWM, and local authorities to crack down on dangerous driving. The new strategy updates the previous 2019 strategy. Since that launch, there has been a 16% reduction in serious or fatal collisions, which, as well as preserving life and limb, has reduced the annual cost to society by £25 million. After lauding the regional road safety strategy targets for 2030, the West Midlands Mayor has also hit out at the government's decision to delay a ban on sales of new petrol and diesel cars. Originally scheduled to come into force in 2030, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that it would be put back to 2035. Conservative Mayor Andy Street said while he backed some of the other measures announced last week, he disagreed with the postponement. He said it was watering down the UK's commitment and not the right call. The West Midlands region is home to some of the UK's biggest automotive manufacturers, including Jaguar Land Rover, JLR, and Aston Martin. According to the West Midlands Growth Company, the region accounts for 30% of all automotive employment in Britain. Mr Street said, My personal view is that this is such an important industry for the future of the West Midlands and of course it is the defining issue of our time, the whole net zero piece. That, I think, was not the right call. In his speech, the Prime Minister insisted he was still committed to reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050. 
Mr. Sunak's announcement on diesel and petrol cars has, however, divided the automotive industry. While Ford said the move undermined its electric car investment plans, JLR and Toyota have welcomed it. JLR, which has its global headquarters in Coventry, said the government's decision was pragmatic and brought the UK in line with other nations. Council Cabinet Member for Climate Change Jim O'Boyle said having battery production in the country for all potential uses was absolutely vital. Despite disagreeing with the Prime Minister on the issue, Mr Street said he was not concerned the delay would harm plans for an electric vehicle battery gigafactory in the Midlands. However, Jim O'Boyle, Cabinet Member for Climate Change on the Labour-run City Council, said he had some concerns. I think it can have an impact, Mr O'Boyle said. Fortunately, as a local authority, we are in very, very detailed discussions with three potential investors in the Gigafactory site. We are going electric as a country. The automotive sector is going electric. We need to use batteries in order to store power as well going forward. So having battery production in this country for all of the potential uses is still absolutely vital. Chris Norbury, chief executive of energy supplier E.ON UK, which also has its headquarters in the city, described the government changes as a misstep on many levels, adding that it risked the UK missing an opportunity to transform the economy. Up next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. Hi everyone, it's Helen from the Beacon Centre here with your weekly update of everything that's been going on. And as usual, there is lots to tell you about, so I will get straight to it. Now, are you experienced in assistive technology for people with sight loss, such as JAWS, NVDA or Mac VoiceOver? Or can you set up and use accessibility features on phones and tablets? Well. We're looking for people who can help blind and visually impaired people to improve their digital skills. To find out more about our paid, flexible roles, contact Kerry Dalgleish on 01902-880-111 to discuss more. While we're on the subject of technology, how long have you spent looking at a screen today? Well, during National Eye Health Week, which ran until September the 24th, We were encouraging everyone to reduce their risk of eye strain by following our top tips. Now, please do pass these on to others if you listen and think they're of use. Now, first one, take breaks. Put your phone away for a couple of evenings a week. I know I definitely need to do that. Use 20-20-20. If you use the screen, make sure that you look 20 feet away for 20 seconds every 20 minutes. Check your lighting. Bright lights behind your screen can cause eye strain. Look at positioning. You need to make sure a screen such as a laptop or a desktop computer is around 18 to 24 inches away from you. Have a look at your text size. Lastly, if it's hard to read, just make it bigger. Another theme of National Eye Health Week was ensuring that little ones get a sight test. If you have or know a young child who struggles to read what's on the whiteboard at school, sits a bit close to the TV or their tablet or suffers from headaches or rubs their eyes a lot, 
it might just be worth getting a test booked in. They may have myopia or short-sightedness that often develops between the ages of 6 and 13, meaning they could need to wear glasses. Now, last this week, there's just a few days left until our September 250 challenge comes to an end. Where has September gone? But we'd like to thank everyone who's been taking part so far. From our Beacon Mermaids, a team made up of our members and volunteers, to Ellie, who's raised £200 so far on her own. We so appreciate your support. You can find details of all our Swim250 fundraisers on our website, www.beaconvision.org forward slash swim hyphen 250. Go team Beacon! That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for that update, Helen. Next up, we have another block of local news. A man from the Black Country who has made 150 blood donations over the course of more than 50 years now hopes to inspire others to do the same. James Lloyd, or Jim as he is known affectionately, first gave the gift of life at the age of 20 after he was led to believe it would help to alleviate nosebleeds which he was suffering from at the time. Despite not making a difference to his nosebleeds, Mr. Lloyd, now aged 77, has been donating blood several times a year ever since. And after 150 donations, he has been handed a certificate by NHS Blood and Transplant as a token of appreciation. Mr. Lloyd, who lives in Aldridge, said, The first time I donated was in June 1966, quite a long time ago. I happened to be going by Warsaw Town Hall one day and saw the blood donation people were there, so I popped in and I've been donating ever since. At the time when I was speaking with the doctors who were on duty, they explained to me how important it was because the blood group I've got is the most common and it was therefore the blood at the time that they were always calling out for. I'm just happy that I've been fit and healthy all my life. I've had no serious illnesses and this is why I've been in the position to donate and help other people. It's all part of being within the community and just making your little mark and helping other people who are less fortunate. The retired electrician said he is planning to donate blood as long as he is physically able to and with his next appointment already booked for the end of the year, he now hopes to encourage other people to do the same. Mr Lloyd added, Although I've been doing it for many years, I'm now coming to the end of donating, so it would be nice if someone else in the community, perhaps a young boy or girl, who are 18 years plus and fit and healthy, may want to read about it and think, I could do that. They are always crying out for blood, so it would be nice if someone could pick it up and run with it. To find out more about how to make a donation in your local area, visit the NHS Blood and Transplant website. Medals awarded to a First World War flying ace are to be auctioned off next month. 
they were awarded to Captain Solomon Clifford Joseph of the Royal Naval Air Service, RNAS, and Royal Air Force, RAF, in the final months of the war in 1918. His medals, a Distinguished Flying Cross, Second Award Bar, an American First World War Victory Medal, and a British War Medal, are being sold by a private collector by Noonan's Mayfair on October the 13th. Captain Joseph was one of the highest scoring aces of the conflict. Mark Quayle, medal specialist and associate director of Noonan's, said, Joseph was a gung-ho pilot whose aggressive flying style and skill accounted for at least 13 aerial victories over the Western Front between May and October 1918. He was no stranger to taking risks and was wounded in aerial combat and nearly shot down on many occasions. Captain Joseph was born to a fine art dealer in the region in April 1893, living his early years on Speedwell Road in Edgebaston. Joining the RNAS, predecessor to the RAF, in August 1917, he trained at Crystal Palace and Vendôme in France. He was posted to Dunkirk on February the 16th, 1918, and flew Sopwith Camels from various bases until November the 28th, 1918, after the war had concluded. His distinguished flying cross, one of around 65 to be issued during the conflict, came in September 1918, with the London Gazette stating, a gallant pilot who has accounted for eight enemy aircraft within the past four months. On many occasions the enemy were numerically superior to Lieutenant Joseph's patrol, but this did not prevent his attaining success. His second award, Bar, came less than two months later. The London Gazette said, a very gallant and skillful officer. He led his formation under a large force of enemy aircraft with a view to including them to descend to attack him. Following the war, Captain Joseph began a manufacturing career back in the region, where he died in March 1966. The grave of a Wolverhampton soldier has been identified in Normandy nearly 80 years after he went missing. Trooper Robert John Cheshire, aged 20, served with the 23rd Hussars, part of the Royal Armoured Corps. A rededication service organised by the Ministry of Defence's Joint Casualty and Compassionate Centre, JCCC, also known as the MOD War Detectives, was held at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission's Barville la Campagne War Cemetery in France last week. Trooper Robert John Cheshire was born in Wolverhampton on April 2nd, 1924. He was the eldest of six children and the only son born to John Cheshire and his wife Florence Ida. Before enlisting on September 18, 1942, he worked as a sausage casings manufacturer. Trooper Cheshire completed his preliminary training in Worcester and on December 16, 1942, 
He joined the Royal Armoured Corps and was posted to the 23rd Hussars on May 18, 1943. After the D-Day landings on June 6, 1944, and the success of Operation Overlord, 23rd Hussars embarked at Gosport on June the 15th, arriving in Normandy the following day. Rosie Barron, JCCC's case leader, said, The rededication service held for Trooper Robert John Cheshire reminds us of just how young many of those who lost their lives during the Second World War were. The fighting in Normandy in 1944, which followed D-Day, is an often overlooked period of the war, but it saw fierce fighting as the Allies slowly pushed out from landing beaches and captured the major ports. The closing of the Falaise Gap was a key turning point in the Normandy campaign. Without men such as Trooper Cheshire, who paid the ultimate price for his country, the liberation of Europe would not have been achieved. Trooper Cheshire's niece, Gillian Deer, attended the rededication service along with other family members. Miss Deer said, We are pleased to be present today to represent Robert's parents and siblings who have themselves passed away not knowing where their beloved Robert lies. So, on behalf of his surviving sister Josie and his family that he didn't get to meet, we say goodbye Rob and rest finally in peace. The service was also attended by serving soldiers of the Royal Armoured Corps and the Coldstream Guards. The service was conducted by the Reverend Martin Robbins, chaplain to the 1st Battalion, the Coldstream Guards. The Reverend Robbins said, It has been an honour and a privilege to have the opportunity to later rest Trooper Cheshire, to recognise and give thanks for his service and sacrifice in the presence of his sister and extended family. He now lies with his brothers in arms. Now it's time to test your knowledge, as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Question 1 How is the Olympic torch traditionally lit each time? Question 2 where does the Olympic torch start from? Question 3. What are the colours of the Olympic rings? Question 4. 
When was the last time the gold medal was made of gold? Question five. In what year did two Japanese pole vault athletes tie for second place? And finally, question six. What were the 2012 Olympic Games known as? I will be back with you later in the show to give you all your answers. But for now, best of luck. Cheers for those questions, Mina. Hmm, I'll get my mind working on them. Up now, however, is another block of local news. Wolverhampton's award-winning wedding venue, Grand Station, has been showcased on a BBC show featuring celebrity chef Tom Kerridge. The Hidden World of Hospitality is an eight-episode series where Tom Kerridge lifts the lid on the industry he knows and loves, meeting the skilled and passionate professionals. Last week, in the eighth and final episode of the series, Tom visited Grand Station in Sun Street, Wolverhampton. The historic venue was originally opened in 1854 as the low-level train station in Wolverhampton. Now, with its classy look, the Grade 2 listed building has become a popular spot for Asian weddings, charity events and so much more. In last week's episode, Tom met the event manager at Grand Station, Manny, whose job it is to make sure every couple's big day feels unique and special, despite the relentless schedule of hosting multiple weddings a week. The team also transformed the space in time for a huge Christmas extravaganza. Also featuring in the episode is Danny Thompson, Grand Station's Head of Sales and Business Development, as he thinks he has spotted an untapped gap in the wedding market. He wants to offer an African wedding package, but with no in-house expertise, he needs to recruit a specialist. Speaking about Grand Station, Danny said, It was a great experience to be part of this documentary. The staff work hard, long hours, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to show everyone the hard work, dedication and sacrifice that they put in every day to ensure the client always gets the best experience that they deserve. Grand Station has continued to grow year on year, which I'm so pleased about in these challenging economic times. We now host over 350 events a year, hosting everything from corporate dinners, Christmas parties, conferences, exhibitions, charity balls and weddings, which we are particularly proud of with winning Wedding Venue of the Year at the British Asian Awards. We attract people from all over the UK to hold the events at the Grand Station, which is great to see. But we are very aware of the responsibility that we have to the local community to ensure we are able to hold events for local people. Without the support of people from Wolverhampton and the surrounding areas, we wouldn't be able to hold these fantastic events and we will continue to serve them the best that we can. 
Grand Station is highly regarded nationwide as a wedding venue and the team won an award for Wedding Venue of the Year at Britain's Asian Wedding Awards at a ceremony held in April this year. Last week's edition of The Hidden World of Hospitality can still be viewed via the BBC iPlayer service. Another elegant location for an auspicious occasion are the enchanting glass houses at Kew Gardens, London. And a local bride who lost her sight at 17 has shared how she asked her groom and wedding guests to wear blindfolds so they could experience what it was like for her to walk down the aisle. The emotional video shared on social media platform TikTok captures the moment Lucy Edwards from the West Midlands greets her husband Ollie at the altar, with everyone else in the room wearing black blindfolds in order to live a moment in her shoes. Lucy lost her eyesight as a teenager due to a rare genetic condition called incontinentia pigmenti and married Beau Ollie in an intimate wedding ceremony in Kew Gardens, London last month. The 27-year-old took a unique approach to her big day, though, requesting that her husband-to-be and their family and friends experienced those steps down the aisle in darkness. The emotional video shows Lucy clad in a beautiful white wedding gown and veil, carrying a bridal bouquet. The clip begins with the bride exiting a white taxi alongside family and bridesmaids, to assist her to the ceremony where her soon-to-be husband, Ollie, awaits. The group walk along together as Lucy's guide dog, Miss Molly, similarly sporting white flowers and a small white dress, stays by her side. Harp music plays in the background as on-screen text reads... I'm blind and I blindfolded my sighted husband and guests when I walked down the aisle. This is their reaction when they lived a moment in my shoes. Miss Molly can be seen being walked down the aisle as Lucy follows closely behind with her dad escorting her down slowly. Lucy beams with happiness as she walks towards Ollie, revealing rows of standing guests who have each been given black blindfolds to wear. When the couple meet, an emotional Ollie breaks down. The pair smile at each other, embracing in a loving hug, before Ollie then uses his hands to feel Lucy's dress, which is how Lucy would have seen her own dress. The guests can then be spotted taking off their own masks, with many smiling in admiration as the groom keeps his on. Lucy took to social media this week to share the footage, writing, Myself and Ollie thought it would be a really good idea to blindfold him 
as when I got to the end and my dad passed my hand to Ollie, he was able to feel my wedding dress in the exact way that I felt it when I first had it on. It was such an important experience for us both, even though Ollie isn't blind. We thought it was really important for him and all of my guests to experience what it's like for me in the most important moment of my life so far. It was such an emotional moment and one that I will remember for the rest of my life. I am so lucky that I have a husband who accepts me for exactly who I am, my disability and everything. I really believe in the philosophy that we are all just small beings and atoms in this massive planet and Stephen Hawking taught me that you can love and hate your disability equally and that's a truly beautiful thing. Weddings are full of memorable sights, smells and sounds that will indelibly etch for a lifetime. It is not just weddings though, as sounds provide a backdrop to our everyday lives and their importance is enhanced if you're experiencing sight loss. Here, Soundings contributor Iona talks about the role that sounds play in our lives, whether they are pleasurable or annoying, acknowledging how they can all enhance our daily lives. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello, I'm Iona, and this article explores the subject of our favourite sounds. For those of us with adequate hearing, sounds provide a backdrop to our daily lives, providing us with comfort, happiness, continuity, and irritation sometimes. Often we tune out of these ambient sounds when we are focused on our thoughts, but occasionally we choose to immerse ourselves in them. Scientific studies and anecdotal evidence have suggested that people with sight impairment often develop a more nuanced sense of hearing, especially relating to location of sound, and even musical abilities. Sound can therefore become an even more important feature of our sensory environment. What we listen to can soothe the mind, send sudden chills down the spine, or urge us to move faster or slower. When we think of the power of sound and the experience of hearing, it seems that its influence is profound and even contributes to the state of our mental health. Sounds can trigger our best memories and associations. Among the most happy sounds experienced by people are reported to be waves lapping on the seashore, birdsong, laughter, the purring of a cat, footsteps on fresh snow, leaves rustling in a gentle breeze, a champagne cork popping, a crackling log fire, food cooking on the hob, pebbles being thrown into the water, sheep bleating, and soft raindrops on a tent or caravan roof. Here are some examples.
Sometimes there can be a more neutral sound that may nevertheless evoke an association of pleasure too, depending on its source. The sound of the key in the lock of your front door, indicating the arrival of a much-loved family member. Or the sound of rattling cutlery in the kitchen, meaning that a meal is about to be served. A recent study of 2,000 adults found that 4 in 10 people hear sounds that prompt nostalgic thoughts at least a couple of times a week. In contrast, the least favourite sounds include screaming children, a slamming door, the dentist's drill, unattended car alarms, sobbing and a yapping dog. We also listen with interest to the radio, audiobooks and TV for entertainment and information. But for most of us, Music is a pleasant companion to our everyday life. We know that listening to music can change our mood, emotions, motivations and our movements. Listening to music allows us to experience feelings in the absence of any actual events causing us to feel joy, sadness or excitement. Studies have shown that when we listen to music, our brains release the chemical dopamine which in turn makes us happy. Dopamine release is strongest when the listener feels chills, the spine-tingling sensation often associated with musical pleasure. Also, music involves patterns. As we listen, we can anticipate what melodies, harmonies and rhythms may follow. This may explain why we are less likely to enjoy music that we are not familiar with. We learn through our cultural environments what sounds constitute music. When we hear a piece of music, its rhythm may connect with our minds in a process known as entrainment. So, if the music is fast-paced, our breathing patterns and heartbeats will accelerate to get closer to the beat, and vice versa. We all have unique tastes and reactions to music, and its power over us has been recognised for many years. From the 1940s to the 1960s, a radio programme and touring show, Workers' Playtime, was transmitted in factory canteens across the UK. The quick marching beats and uplifting tone of the music was thought to exhort staff to work faster and be more productive and happy in their work. This music-while-you-work theme has carried on over the decades. The reason we choose to listen to music lies in the reward centre of our brains. Music provides a way of escape and can relax or energise the body, as the brain waves are able to synchronise with the rhythm and pace of a tune. Fast music can make a person feel pumped and alert, while slower music has a calming effect. Music can also evoke feelings of nostalgia. A song that was played during a significant and happy life event can trigger a deeply nostalgic emotional experience. Subjectivity is another key factor in listening to music. Listening to classical music or rap, what is appealing to one person may be intensely annoying for another. Therefore, music also sends a message of identity, showing that we belong to a specific social group. For example, A liking for floaty, new-age music may communicate to others that we are free spirits and unconventional. A taste for opera may send a message that we are cultured and highbrow. 
When people get together and hear the same music, such as in a concert hall, it can result in their brains syncing up in rhythmic ways, inducing a shared emotional experience and sense of friendship and belonging. So, actively seeking out and listening to our favourite music and being increasingly conscious of pleasant natural sounds around us can add many happy moments to our lives. TNF Soundings Up next, let's have another block of local news. Who doesn't love a good old classic custard cream, bourbon biscuit or dunking a malted milk? Well, here's something to sweeten your day. If you are in need of some extra dough. Need with a K. A reinvigorated Staffordshire biscuit maker plans to increase its workforce by more than 50% following major investments and impressive sales growth. The 115-year Elks Biscuit Company based in Staffordshire has been given a boost with a combination of successful customer product launches and own label sales in existing lines increasing by a third over the past year. Site General Manager Kevin Hand said, We're extremely pleased that recent investments and solid sales growth have driven the need for so many new opportunities. The current increase in own brand production alone means we need significant numbers of permanent roles. We're planning on relaunching the Elks Biscuits brand next year, which will offer fantastic quality and value at a time when every penny counts for shoppers. So we're going to be extremely busy and need to recruit as many people as we can. I think Elks is a fantastic place to work and I would urge the local community to consider whether they'd like to be part of a 115-year-old success story in making products that everyone loves. Many generations of families have either worked here or still work here and it clearly means so much to so many people. We're proud to be at the heart of the local community and be one of the town's biggest employers. I would urge those with the right skill set and can-do attitudes to get in touch. Kevin explained there will be further investment in training, apprenticeships and career development opportunities to expand the Elks family in the future. The current product range includes own-label biscuit favourites like custard creams, and chocolate malted milks as well as premier retailer chocolatey custard and bourbon creams. Elks was saved from closure in March 2022 and the private office also takes in turkey supplier Bernard Matthews and restaurant chains Carluccio's, Giraffe and Ed's Easy Diner. Anyone interested in applying for a role should contact Elks Recruitment on 01889 563 131 and ask for the HR team. If biscuits are not quite your thing, then a local firefighter may have landed the perfect job. 
as beer-loving black country firefighter Ben Cluro has gained his dream job as Aldi's official beer taster. Ben was recruited by the supermarket chain after beating hundreds of hopeful applications from all over the country. The new role followed a nationwide hunt which opened on July 21st that asked the UK's beer fans to explain why they should be chosen for the role. To land the dream job, Ben, who has been a member of the fire service for 17 years, said he was not only passionate about beer, but also about sharing feedback with the everyday beer lover out there. Mr. Cluro said, As a huge beer fan, I know what beer lovers want. That is great tasting beer that they can enjoy when money is tight. My standout favourite from the range was the caramelised biscuit ale. As part of his new role, Ben was handed 12 new beers from Aldi's beer range to review. This year's new lineup includes a varied selection from the smooth hop forward beer, which Ben described as hoppy lemons and fresh, to a bold coffee stout, which was called out for its smooth and rich finish. Julie Ashfield, Managing Director of Buying at Aldi UK, said, We highly value the opinions of our customers, so we're excited to have Ben on board. It is important that we continue growing and improving Aldi's beer selection each year. I'm sure our buying team will find Ben's feedback very helpful. Well, I don't know about you, but all this talk has got me feeling a little lightheaded. I think I need to sit myself down and sober up with a nice cup of tea. Well, here's a brew to stew over. Black country tea enthusiasts are up in arms about a new tea bag in the works from PG Tips, which promises to brew in just 60 seconds. While most tea fanatics recommend brewing a cup of English breakfast tea for three to five minutes, the majority of tea lovers are too time poor or impatient to let their tea bag infuse for more than one minute. PG Tips hopes it has come up with a solution by investing £50 million, yes, £50 on a brand new blend and bag that infuses in just 60 seconds, a venture that has taken the company two years to develop. In its research, the PG Tips found that 85% of tea drinkers leave the bag in to brew for under a minute while a staggering 45% bin their tea bag after less than 30 seconds. Tea experts at the company have developed a new design that features a square bag with room for the leaves to infuse. It is designed to not fold over on itself, which is said to improve the overall taste of the tea. If the bag folds, the leaves don't have room to expand and can leave the tea lacking flavour. The company claims its new blend has the perfect particle size for a quick cuppa. The new blend is grown at high altitudes in Kenya and Rwanda, which the brand claims provides a better taste. However, some tea fanatics are not convinced. 
Jane Pettigrew, course director at the UK Tea Academy, said, We relish the three or four minutes it takes to brew a real cup of tea and benefit from the zen-like spirit of tea. The slow brewing of tea creates a magical few minutes in a busy, sometimes frantic day. I really abhor this kind of innovation. It is not progress, but a massive retrograde step backwards in what tea should be. More than 100 million cups of tea are made every day in Britain, and 97.5% of those are brewed from a bag rather than made from loose leaf variety, according to the UK Tea and Infusions Association. For anyone experiencing sight loss, the process of making a brew can be fraught with danger and mishaps. From the difficulties of boiling the kettle, the dangers of pouring piping hot water, to accidentally spilling the milk and even knocking over a mug or two. Thankfully, there are many low vision devices and aids available to help us continue making our own decent cuppa. Here's a few to help you with your brew. Liquid Level Indicator Liquid level indicators have been helping people with sight loss get their morning cuppa for more than 25 years. This compact, lightweight device has three metallic probes which indicate two separate liquid levels within a cup or mug by triggering audible alerts and vibrations. The first alert tells you when to stop adding hot water if you also want to add milk. The second alert tells you when the cup is nearly full. The device can be used on most cups and mugs as well as glasses, jugs and cold cooking pots. With the built-in magnets, the liquid level indicator can be conveniently stored on a fridge door, so it's always easy to find when you need it. It is recommended that you test the unit with cold water before each use to ensure the device has sufficient battery capacity to operate properly. The easy open battery drawer makes changing the battery simple and a beep confirms it is fitted correctly. As the unit is not sealed, a damp cloth to wipe clean the probes is all that is required. Kettle Tipper The Kettle Tipper is a metal frame that has an adjustable secure strap which allows the tipper to be used with a wide range of kettles and jugs. With the kitchen kettle strapped in and teacup positioned accordingly, the metal frame pivots to tilt the kettle's spout towards the location of the cup, helping to reduce spills. Another ingenious invention which allows you to boil and dispense hot water with the touch of a button is a one-touch kettle that you fill with water and it dispenses hot water one cup at a time. A smart and modern version of the kettle tipper. There's no need for lifting, pouring or any of the awkward and potentially risky activities involved in making a good old cuppa. It's a great development for those who have dexterity issues or problems with fine motor skills 
And as many users have put it, there's no longer any need to worry about pouring boiling water on yourself. The Boil Alert Disc The Boil Alert is a handy tool if you'd like a reminder that you have a saucepan boiling on the hob. Made of stainless steel, this unique aid warns you when water starts to boil in a saucepan. Simply place the alert in the bottom of a saucepan. It doesn't matter which way up and it will rattle once the water starts to boil. Can be a useful prompt and audible aid. Anti-spill mug. The anti-spill mug has a clever suction design which keeps the vessel glued to any flat, non-porous surface. This makes the mug better at resisting knocks. Up next, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. It's all yours, Roger. Take it away. Hello everyone. Well, we had such a lot of international sport televised this past year, so I thought that this week I'd resurrect one from a couple of years ago about the Olympics, as it's a real international affair. So now then, did you know that? The Olympic torch is lit the old-fashioned traditional way in the ancient ceremony at the Temple of Hera in Greece. Actresses wearing costumes of Greek priestesses use a parabolic mirror and sun's rays to kindle the torch. From there, the torch starts its relay to the host city. It's usually carried by runners, but it has travelled by a boat, on a plane, on horseback, on the back of a camel, by radio signal, believe it or not, underwater and in a canoe. The relay torch and the Olympic flame are supposed to burn during the whole event. In case the flame goes out, it can be only ignited with a backup flame, which has to be lit in grease as well, and never with a regular lighter. The five rings of the Olympic symbol, designed by Baron Pierre de Coubertin, co-founder of the modern Olympic Games, represent the five inhabited continents of the world. The six colours, blue, yellow, black, green and red, and the white background, were chosen because of every nation's flag contains at least one of them. And during the 1936 Berlin Games, two Japanese pole vaulters tied for second place. Instead of competing again, they cut the silver and bronze medals in half and fused the two different halves together so that each of them had a half silver and half bronze medal. Olympic medals now are not made of gold anymore, but are only finished with gold. They are mostly made of silver in this day and age. Last time they were made entirely of gold was at the 1904 Olympic Games. And women weren't allowed to compete in the Olympics until 1900, when the IOC became committed to equality. Although it took over another 100 years to fruition, 
when, in the London 2012 Olympic Games, they became known as the Women's Games. Why? Because it was the first Summer Olympics that showcased true equality. Women were not barred from a single sport, and for the first time in history, each nation sent a female competitor. Well, there you go then. Some little-known things about the ancient games. Personally, I'm full of admiration for these athletes. I think they're amazing, as the last time I ran for a bus, I missed it. So I'll gently stroll over the calf and get me a nice breakfast back. I'll be back next week though, so till then, I'll say bye for now. ta a bit. Ta-ra! Up now we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, come rain or shine, by our own Sunny Mina. The weather for this week ahead is forecast to remain unsettled with some sunny intervals but plenty of showers. Temperatures are also forecast to be much the same as 18 degrees. Overnight temperatures will also remain comfortable at 9 degrees. UV levels are expected to fluctuate between low and medium as we go through the week and see varying spells of sunshine. The sunrise and sunset times are 7.15am for the sunrise and 6.30pm for the sunset. Friday 29th of September is forecast to be clear, dry and full of bright sunshine. A welcome relief from all of the wild, wet and windy weather we have had. With a gentle breeze, temperatures are expected to be pleasant at 17 degrees. Moving on and the spell of dry weather looks set to remain through the weekend. With a gentle breeze, temperatures will continue to remain at 17 degrees and may even push up close to 20 degrees on Sunday. On to next week, when a spell of unsettled weather will dominate once again with plenty of sharp showers to welcome in October. It is forecast for rain to remain in the region on Monday 2nd of October right through to Thursday 5th of October. The showers are forecast to be persistent all week but there's a chance of some brief sunny intervals breaking through at times allowing temperatures to continue to hover around 18 degrees. So that's another mixed bag of rain and sun of the week and as always enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update Mina. Now it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on. It's never a penalty. It's an absolutely terrible decision. These were the words of Wolves head coach Gary O'Neill and many media pundits alike, as Wolves were, yet again, on the wrong end of another controversial VAR decision after a Luton penalty cancelled out Pedro Neto's opener. Buoyed by a loud atmosphere, the host started better, with a clear game plan of pressing high and forcing Wolves into long balls. 
It proved to be a disastrous first-half performance from Wolves, continuously losing their shape, with players seemingly unaware of their responsibilities. Wolves were all over the place. After a very poor half, the task became even harder for Wolves when summer signing Jean Rickner Bellegarde got himself sent off in the 39th minute. After making a decent tackle, Bellegarde found himself on the deck and tangled up with Luton captain Tom Lockyer. While the experienced Luton man held him down, Bellegarde, in clear frustration, opted to kick out to try and free himself. The naive kick-out on the Luton defender resulted in the referee brandishing a straight red card to the Wolves man, which even a short VAR check could not overturn. To weather the storm, Wolves switched to a 5-3-1 formation and survived to enter half-time 0-0. Wolves started the second half in much the same vein, continuously giving away possession. But just five minutes into the second half, the ten men of Wolves rallied to take the lead, albeit against the run of play. In a rare moment of quality, a magnificent interception from Joao Gomez saw him racing forward before he released Neto, who burst beyond Lockyer with superb pace. The winger cut inside and smashed an emphatic finish into the roof of the net to send the travelling Wolves fans into raptures. Then, controversy hit. Despite officiating guidelines suggesting handball cannot be given if the ball ricochets off another part of the same player's body before hitting the hand or arm, Wolves were penalised when a cross hit Joao Gomez on the foot and bounced up onto his arm. VAR checked it but did not overturn it, and the penalty was calmly dispatched by the hosts to make it one all. The decision baffled pundits across the footballing world, including former referee Mike Dean, who was astounded at the decision while speaking on media outlet Sky Sports. Wolves were poor and VAR was embarrassing, but Wolves managed to hang on and had to settle for the injustice as they left Kenilworth Road with a point. Speaking after the game, Gary O'Neill lashed out at the refereeing decisions. If that is a penalty, then we're in a really bad place with where the rules are. I've got the rules that were sent to us on my phone and mitigating circumstances for handball are if it hits the same player on a different body part and has significant change of trajectory, then it's not handball. I just don't understand. Hopefully they can improve the level they're at and we can start to get our fair share. This decision is the latest controversial one to go against Wolves after a last-minute penalty was denied at Old Trafford on the opening day of the season. As Wolves were undone by a controversial penalty, the Baggies had keeper Alex Palmer to thank for a crucial first-half penalty save as a goalless draw against Millwall made it three draws on the trot. Before kick-off, there was a rousing minute's applause in tribute to former promotion-winning Albion midfielder Ian Hamilton, who passed away recently. Many of his former teammates and manager Ozzy Ardiles were still making their way around the outskirts to the pitch to applause from the Baggies fans 
before there was almost a disastrous start for the Albion class of 2023-24. With 100 seconds on the clock and Albion dithering with possession at the back, a defensive mix-up required the quick reactions of goalkeeper Palmer to keep the Lions at bay. And on 28 minutes, Palmer's heroics were required again. After Kyle Bartley handled in the box, Palmer dived to his right to deny Millwall from the spot. It was a frantic start in what was a lacklustre first half from the Baggies, but they proved to be a lot more threatening after the interval. A far more dynamic Albion side came out in the second half, and only a lick of paint prevented them from going ahead. After Matt Phillips was denied twice in quick succession, both Alex Mowat and Brandon Thomas Asante saw efforts come off the crossbar as Albion pressed forward for a decisive breakthrough, which just wouldn't come. Carlos Corberan made several changes, including sending on Wallace and Swift, as the Baggies continued to push for all three points, but were ultimately forced to settle for just one as Millwall held firm. In his post-match interview, Carlos Corberan admitted his team needs to find a more consistent level during the full 90 minutes, after the goalless draw against Millwall made it a hat-trick of stalemates this week. There was a lot of work done in this week, and at the end we could only achieve three points from three games, he said. If you analyse the week, we couldn't keep the same level in one half of the game to the other. And in the championship, to make an excellent 45 or 50 minutes is not enough. It doesn't mean that if we play well for a full game, that will always be enough because the key is to be clinical in front of goal. The more options you create, the more chances and possibilities you have to score the goal. It doesn't get any easier for Albion as they travel to high-flying Preston next weekend. Now, here come the quiz answers, and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question one. How is the Olympic torch traditionally lit each time? And the answer here is using a parabolic mirror. Question two. Where does the Olympic torch start from? And the answer, it starts from the host city. Question three. What are the colours of the Olympic rings? And the answer here is blue, yellow, black, green and red. Question four. When was the last time the gold medal was made of gold? And the answer here is it was in the 1904 Olympics. Question five. In what year did two Japanese pole vault athletes tie for second place? And the answer here is in the 1936 Olympic Games. And finally, question six. What were the 2012 Olympic Games known as? And the answer, it was known as 
the Women's Games. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you all once again. Bye for now. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV46AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!